the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. When true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeking such to worship Him. Praise to the God who reigns above. Worship your way isn't worship at all. <laughs> in fact, you're really just worshiping yourself because you're putting your ideas above God's commands. And descends in perfect love. It's adoration of the one who is higher than you. And it's obedient service to the one who sends you out on his tasks. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the book of Leviticus. The first several chapters of Leviticus showed us the various offerings and sacrifices that were used in the worship of God. Aaron and his sons were to be the priests, interceding between God and the children of Israel. Everything was ready. Aaron and his sons consecrated themselves, the tabernacle, and the altar. God had accepted their offerings and sacrifices, but now we will see tragedy strike as we join Pastor Will in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. One of the most interesting and saddest chapters in the book of Leviticus, well, in the Bible, really. Leviticus, the whole theme of it is that the nation of Israel was called to be holy, and God is teaching them how to be holy. Chapter 9 closed with an amazing moment as God's glory appeared there over the tabernacle, and he sends fire to consume the offering on the altar. I mean, I can't imagine a much more amazing worship service than that. The people shout in triumph. They fall on their face in worship. Now in chapter 10, that moment comes to a screeching halt, comes crashing down in the most horrible of ways. In fact, there are a few places, I think, where sin and judgment are presented in such stark contrast to obedience and blessing as we see here in Leviticus 10. So while Moses and Aaron have done everything exactly as God commanded, two of Aaron's sons take a, a very prideful approach to their job. They burst onto this glorious scene where God is being magnified by the people with their own version of worship, drawing attention to themselves. And as we see the tragedy caused by their disobedience, may it encourage us to leave behind any strange fire when we're living for the Lord and worshiping him, that our lives might be ones that worship God in spirit and in truth as he requires us to worship him. So Leviticus 10, I'm going to actually go up to verse 9 and we'll set the stage in verse 22. And Aaron lifted up his hand toward the people and he blessed them and came down from offering of the sin offering and the burnt offerings and peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shout for joy. They shouted and fell on their faces. Chapter 10, verse 1. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon. And they offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. 
before we kind of write these guys off as uneducated or inexperienced, whimsical or lackadaisical, we need to remember a few things about them. These guys saw their uncle Moses go up into the mountain and survive for 40 days without sustenance. Saw him come back down and then deal with their dad when he had led the nation astray into idolatry. They had joined all the leaders of Israel and their father on the mountain where they'd shared a meal with God in his presence. And they saw God's presence there. They've gone through all the rituals of consecration. They spent an entire week inside the tabernacle alone with God. And now they've seen fire, not just from afar, but right in their midst. Probably felt the heat as it licked the altar and burnt up the offering on there. They've seen the fire from God's presence light the altar ablaze. And they go and they do this. This goes to show that no amount of anointing oil outside can change a man on the inside. A man must yield to God's call and obey. In this moment of God being glorified and joy amongst the people, it says that these guys took either of them, so both of them, his censer. We usually think of a censer as like a religious tool where somebody's humming or a mantra or something like that and smoke is filling the room and whatnot. That is not what this was. This was a fire pan, common tool carried by people because fire was precious in those days. We didn't have electricity like we did. You didn't want to have to relight it, so coals were carried from place to place. Now, while the artisans had crafted some for use in the tabernacle. It makes specific mention that these are their censers. I don't know what that means, but we'll take a gander in a moment. They could have snagged them from the clothing they had worn to the ceremony. I don't imagine they walked up to the tabernacle naked. Before they changed into their holy garments, they maybe set those on the side and had their own personal censers there. I don't know. Maybe they could have grabbed them from wherever they were stored in the tabernacle earlier and claimed them as theirs. Either way is a problem, though, because everything in the tabernacle was dedicated to the Lord. Anything outside the tabernacle wasn't allowed inside. So we see here the problem isn't so much the censer, where they got it from or what they had branded it as, but it mentions that they put fire therein and then put incense on top of it to burn and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. This strange fire, it comes from a word that means a foreigner or a foreign land. From an ethical standpoint, it refers to someone who lives outside of the boundaries of God's standard. That's why the lewd woman in Proverbs is called the strange woman. She's a foreign woman. She's living outside the boundaries of God's standard. It was also frequently used in worship to describe something unauthorized from the outside, something that hadn't been dedicated to God's use and therefore forbidden. Because there had been feasting outside in this big moment and they were outside the tabernacle according to verse 23. Moses and Aaron went in and then they came out to bless the people and the glory of God fell and it mentions that they couldn't go into the tabernacle because the glory of God fell. So we know they're outside the tabernacle where all this feasting had been taking place. So as Aaron is done pronouncing a blessing upon the people, it's likely they ran to one of these cooking fires after God sent his fire to consume the sacrifice. So this means they put regular old coals in their pans and then use them to light incense that they were then going to go into the holy place and place upon the golden altar, which was something they were supposed to do that day. That was supposed to be started now, but not with that fire, not with fire that hadn't been dedicated to the Lord. This falls in line now here with the end of the sentence where it mentions that they were going to do something that God told them not to do because it says here that God had never commanded them to do this. Their actions also, I imagine, would have caught the attention of the people. The people are bowing down before God and all this, I mean, everybody's bowing down and all of a sudden they see two guys zip 
tip off, go to these little cooking pots and pull out a couple of coals, put them in their censers and run, light some incense on and run it back in. They would have taken their lives off the Lord and put it upon these two guys in this big moment. And I don't think I have to tell you that's a super no-no and God's getting the glory. One of the worst things I think sometimes during a service is when I'm worshiping God and I'm just totally lost in him and someone decides to interject in such a way that like I just lose sight of God completely. It's incredibly annoying. I was at a concert one time, very good concert. It was a, a worship atmosphere and whatnot. Really enjoyed the music and such a great time. And for whatever reason, the guy who was leading just decided this was going to be his moment, you know? And it was going to be his moment. And we just got caught up in the emotion or whatever. I don't know, maybe he's an emotional individual and he was totally pure in his heart and how he did it. But all I know is that after about the 80th time we sang that chorus, I was so disrupted from seeing the Lord at that moment and all I could see was him and all I was thinking was, can we please stop? When these guys get the attention from God and attempt to re-enter the tabernacle to take that incense to the golden altar, God deals with them in a way probably surprising to everyone. And there went out fire, verse two, from the Lord and devoured them and they died right there in the Lord's presence, right there in the tabernacle, they died. Can you imagine the jolt of shock and horror that went through the people at this moment? It's a joyous moment. They're shouting for joy, worshiping the Lord. These two guys zip off. They're like, what are they doing? And they go zip right back in and they step inside that tabernacle and whoosh, fire comes out from God's presence and and they're dead. Not chastised, not disciplined, not kicked out, dead. Can you imagine what it was like for Aaron all of a sudden to see that? Or for the other two brothers to see this? There's a similar story in the New Testament right at the beginning of the church that jolts us in the same way. Turn to Acts chapter 5 with me. You're probably familiar with this, but it jolts us in the same way. Mentioned in chapter 4 that God was blessing the church and adding to the church and people are getting saved and miracles are being done. People are selling their possessions and laying them down, giving them the church and just everybody's ready to serve Jesus. But then into this beautiful, very beginning moment of God's work. It says in verse one of chapter five in Acts, but just like with Nadab and Abihu, but a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, they sold a possession and they kept back part of the price, his wife also being private to it. And they brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. The problem is, is they told the apostles that they were doing the same thing everybody else was, selling everything and giving it to the Lord. So they were appearing to be more spiritual than they actually were. Now, God didn't demand they give anything to him in this sense, but they wanted to be seen as spiritual when they really weren't. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained in his possession, he says, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own power? You could do whatever, what you wanted with it. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied unto men, but unto God. Ananias, upon hearing these words, was rebuked by the Lord. Is that what it says? He fell down, dead, gave up the ghost. And as you can imagine, great fear came on all of them that heard these things. You know, I imagine if we were here at worship tonight, we're singing and, and you're just kind of singing, thinking, yeah, I hope the, the bucks hold on. Man, this is, this is going to be tough. You know? you know, your love never fails, never gives up. Lord, don't give up on the bucks, you know. And, and, and then all of a sudden, boom, somebody right next to you, you're just dead. Then you look over and you see like ESPN.com on their phone. I imagine you'd be like, Lord, I give you everything. I don't care who wins that game. I am all yours right now. That's what it means when it says great fear fell upon everyone. And the young men arose and they 
wound him up and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours later when his wife, not knowing what was done, she came in. And Peter answered unto her and said, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, oh yeah, so much. Verse nine, Peter said unto her, how is it that you have agreed together to tempt the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried your husband are at the door and they shall carry you out. Well, then she fell down immediately at his feet and gave up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead, carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard those things. I imagine it was the most reverent worship services for who knows how long after that. And it's a similar thing that happened here in the beginning of Israel's worship. Where the Lord says, no, 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 no. It's not going to be like that. It's not going to be like that. All that joy, the highest of spiritual highs for the nation, it was gone in a snap and replaced with fear. Before we address the why, we have to address the fact that it happened. Many read these things and they get angry at God. They Maybe you even question the fairness of God or the severity of his actions. Some refuse to believe in a God who would do such things. But you know, when you have one of those reactions, it really says less about God and more about us, really. It doesn't say anything about God. God is who he is. It says more about us. What kind of person believes they know better than their maker? When I was a child, I often questioned my parents' decisions and actions. I was pretty much almost always wrong. My pride, though, and my immaturity clouded my judgment. And I've learned that later on. I have since apologized many times to my parents for my behavior. I can't believe I was acted that way. I'm sorry. My parents were good, but they were imperfect. Why would a God who's perfect ever need to answer to the likes of me? He doesn't. He never does in scripture. In fact, did you ever notice that when God, that God never tells Job why he suffered? Do you know that? The whole story never tells him why he went through what he did. Like we know now that God was trying to prove something to the enemy. He was using Job as a test to show the enemy, no, he loves me no matter what. Job never, never heard that side of the story. He never got an explanation of why. Even though Job had complained about the why. God, I don't understand. These, my friends, say I'm in sin. You know my heart. You know I'm not in sin. I know this isn't you judging me. And yet it sure feels like it. And I don't understand why. Could you just explain why, God? And when God shows up onto the scene, God never explains why. In fact, God never defends his behavior. Look at Job 42 with me. He never explains to Job why. Never defends his behavior. God simply revealed himself to Job in greater detail. And you know the story. He asked Job, where were you? And I did this and this in the sky. Where were you? And I fashioned Leviathan out of the great deep. All the various things that God did. He goes, who are you to question me? This is what I'm like. And look at Job's response in Job 42, one through six. It says, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no thought can be withheld from you. No purpose of yours. I can't understand all your purposes. Who is he that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, Have I uttered that which I understood not? Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. And what a confession. I mean, if ever there was a guy who probably had a a semi-right to complain, it's him. All right, you know, what what should we do today? Well, I'm I'm gonna use Job as an example of how a person can, you know, go through suffering, but because they love me, but you know, beforehand, they'll love me after and, and they'll be faithful to the end even though Satan accuses him otherwise, saying he's only good because I'm good to him. I'm gonna take away all my goodness and he'll still love me. If anybody had a right to complain, maybe Job could have said, I didn't sign up for that. And yet this guy says, I talked about, I spoke about what I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I know not. 
So here I beseech you, he says to the Lord, and I will speak. I will demand of you and declare thou unto me. He says, I do have something to say, Lord. I need to speak. I need to get this off my chest. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye sees you. Wherefore, I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. It's almost like he doesn't even say, I abhor my behavior. I abhor the fact that I didn't trust you like I should have. I did trust you, but not like I should have. Abhor the fact that I questioned you. He just like looks at himself in light of God, and he's like, who am I? What am I? Why am I even thinking this? You're God. You can do what you want. I repent of myself. I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Like Job, we must all come to terms with the fact that we aren't God. Have you come to terms with that? God never explains why the penalty is so heavy. The following verses do give us some clues as to the severity of their crime and why God did what he did. Verse 3, I mean, can you only imagine into this moment, Moses said unto Aaron. I mean, I don't know if Aaron was angry, but he obviously is looking to Moses. What just happened? What is going on? And I do think that through this passage, Aaron really comes up to a place that I really admire. And I think the man deserves a lot of credit for how he conducts himself as Moses answers and through this whole scene. So Moses explains to Aaron, he says, Aaron, this is that which the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come near to me. And before all the people, I will be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. We have no record of the Lord saying this, but we don't need to have him saying it. It doesn't mean he didn't say it. What we do have recorded speaks for itself. Look back in Exodus 19.22, when Moses is explaining about the specialness of the priests and how they can't just approach God normally, haphazardly and disobediently. Exodus 19 verse 22 Moses says, And let the priests also which come near to the Lord sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. Now the wrongdoing here, according to this verse, seems to be twofold. Number one, it says that they had not sanctified the Lord. The word sanctify means to show oneself as sacred or set apart. The Lord said, I will be sanctified. I'm going to show myself as sacred or set apart, whether you go with it or not. The tense of this verb indicates that whenever someone approaches God, It can't be how they approach someone else. God has to be set apart. It has to be different. God will show himself as distinct even if we aren't the ones doing so. So their actions did not set God apart as holy. How so? Well, by bringing undedicated fire into the tabernacle. See, every instrument crafted for the tabernacle was smeared with that special holy anointing oil. Not because there was anything supernatural about the oil, but it set the entire place and everything that went on in it apart from everyday life. Nadab and Abihu completely ignored God's commands to bring nothing that hadn't been set apart or made holy for use in the tabernacle. They brought that fire that hadn't been dedicated. They brought possibly instruments that hadn't been dedicated into the tabernacle. And by doing so, they made both God and Israel's worship no different than any other activity. Now you might be saying, is God really this meticulous about worship? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Turn to John chapter four with me because I find Jesus's interaction with the woman at the well very helpful when we're trying to understand how God wants to be worshiped. It's funny how human we are. We get the idea, well, we're doing something nice for you. We're singing about how cool you are and stuff. You don't get to choose how we do it. But that's a human thing. God's not a man. Jesus in John chapter four, and you know it, he busts the woman. She says, man, I'd like some of that water. And Jesus says, sure, go call your husband and come back and I'll show you. She's like, I'm not married. And he goes, well, that's one of the first times you've spoken truthfully tonight. (laughs) Yeah, you're not married. You've been married five times. And the guy you're with now, you're not married to. So she decides to get spiritual on him. I think you're a prophet. Then she decides to bring in a debate. 
She says here in verse 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain. The Samaritans worshiped on Mount Gerizim. Of course, Israel worshiped in Jerusalem. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where men have to worship. It's so confusing. I don't understand. Basically trying to make excuses for why she's not where she should be with the Lord. Jesus said unto her, woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Listen, I don't want to get into a spiritual debate with you about something that's not really important right now. Truth is, there's coming a day when neither mountain will be the place where you worship, which is why we're here tonight. Now, he does explain to her, you worship what you don't know. You worship God in ignorance right now, which is not right. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. So he does correct her little debate real quick. But he explains that's not what's important here. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. See, God is a spirit, Jesus says. And they that worship him not might worship him, but must worship him in spirit and in truth. Worship your way isn't worship at all. (laughs) In fact, you're really just worshiping yourself because you're putting your ideas above God's commands. Paul condemns this in Colossians 2.23 as will worship. That's what he calls it. Worship that arises out of my will. The very nature of worship is submission to his will. John Calvin called this will worship. He says, worship which men choose for themselves at their own option without authority from God. I don't think I could say it better than that. The main words for worship in both the Old and the New Testament, they mean the same thing. To bow down, to prostrate oneself. That means to get on your knees and to spread your hands out wide. It's what we do when we arrest people, right? Sometimes. There's no room for this is how I like to worship in that. I mean, you're, you're in a completely vulnerable, awkward position. There's no room for this is how I like to worship in that. It's absolute surrender to the one you're bowing to. It's adoration of the one who is higher than you. And it's obedient service to the one who sends you out on his tasks. It's just as much listening to what he has to say as it is telling him how great he is. Brought to mind a saying from one of the books by C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's in the silver chair and it's Jill has now come to this new world with Eustace and she gets angry and she pushes him off a cliff. Nice friend. But the wind takes Eustace somewhere and whatever. And so now she's wandering alone in a place where she doesn't know where anything is and she needs food. She you know, needs sustenance. And so she sees a river, but as she approaches it, she notices there's a lion by the river and it's Aslan, of course. And the lion says, are you not thirsty? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Well, then drink, said the lion. Oh, may I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might have well asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Well, will you promise not to do anything to me? If I do come, said Jill, I make no promise, said the lion. Well, Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said? I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. Well, then I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Well, then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. I love that. I love at the end of, you know, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe when 
Lucy and I don't remember her fawn friend is up there and Mr. Tumnus, I guess. And, you know, he, they see Aslan walking and she says, is he safe? Something along those lines. And he says, no, I wouldn't call him safe. <laughs> He's not exactly a tame lion. But then she says, but he is good. And Mr. Tumnus replies, yes, he is. We sometimes forget that he is the lion of Judah, roaring in power, as the scripture says. When he returns, the Bible says that he's going to destroy with the brightness of his coming all of those who stand opposed to him. It says they'll melt like, you know, in fervent heat where blood will flow to the horse's bridles. Listen, I know it's gross, but that's what the Bible says. And so when we come here and we see this situation where the Lord says, I will be sanctified, we don't approach it like someone else saying, well, I wanted this for my birthday, so I'm not happy. God is not some selfish brat up in the sky demanding we worship him a certain way. He is God Almighty who knows what is right and what is just. God is a holy and just God. Worship is supposed to be all about him. This is because God is worthy of our worship. Who he is in character is deserving of all our honor and respect. Nothing should get in the way of the honor due him. Not even ourselves or our presuppositions. We must worship him in spirit and in truth. If you have any spiritual or physical need, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.